Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 28. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to look at two piano sonatas, the brashly exuberant Waldstein Sonata in C major, number 21, opus 53, and the quieter and more introspective Sonata in F major, number 22, opus 54. Sonata number 21 gets its nickname from its dedication to Count Waldstein, one of the composer's most loyal patrons over the years. Beethoven began work on it in December 1803, after he had begun sketches for his Eroica Symphony, and it was published in 1804, after the Eroica Symphony was completed, although the symphony was ultimately assigned a higher opus number. The first movement, marked Allegro con Brio, is in common time and begins pianissimo. For good reason, the opening measures of the first movement get a lot of attention from commentators. And there have been a lot of commentators, because this work is quite popular and widely played. Beethoven scholar Louis Lockwood states, The first movement begins like no other by Beethoven or anyone else. Different people seize upon different aspects of the opening of the exposition, but one thing that is frequently addressed is the remarkable nature of the first theme, and the fact that it is, to a great extent, barely a theme at all in the way we've been used to talking about themes. It is, rather, a compelling sonority, a series of throbbing eighth-note chords low in the piano's range, initially on the tonic C major chord. That was just the first four bars, but they are a very notable four bars, in part for the concentration of the then fairly exotic sonority, but also because of the relative absence of linear motives. As I'm sure you noticed, we do hear a couple of those very briefly in measures three and four. The first, a quick little descending fragment that starts on the fifth scale degree, after we've reached the dominant chord in inversion skips up a third, and then scampers back down. And the second in measure four, which starts two and a half octaves higher, and then rushes back down the scale. Here again are both motives in a simplified version. But we'll focus initially on the unusual sonority created by the repeated chords in the lower range of the piano one that has captured the attention of so many Beethoven authorities. For example, Joseph Kerman and Alan Tyson, Swafford, Drake, Rosen, and others. Many attribute this new interest in sonority, employed as a thematic element, to Beethoven's acquisition in 1803 of his new Erard piano, a gift from its maker. It was, compared to the Viennese pianos he had used up to that point, a larger instrument with sturdier action and one which provided a fuller, more resonant sound, especially in the lower range, and even at quiet dynamic levels. Although I should point out that the level of resonance that I'm referring to here is far less than in a modern grand piano. Erard was French, but operated for a time in England, and his pianos were described as having English-style action, along with a larger keyboard range, five and a half octaves, and more pedaling possibilities, including a floor pedal rather than the typical knee action pedals 
and also una corda availability, which shifts the hammers so that the two strings rather than three are sounded, making a quieter sound possible. So Beethoven seems to have been captivated, at least for a time, by the new possibilities inherent in his new piano, and particularly impressed by its resonance in the lower range, which is presumably why that plays such an important role in the first theme of the movement. But let's move on now to the next part of the first subject. Well, it's the same thing, almost, but down a whole step. This quick plunge into B-flat major, the so-called subtonic key, because it's a whole step beneath the original tonic of C major, is very unusual. And, as Lockwood and others have pointed out, it destabilizes that original tonic key very early in the game, tipping off the fact that this first movement is not only about employing a unique sonority as one of its central features, but that we can quite possibly expect to encounter more unusual key relationships as we proceed. By the way, I said it's almost the same. The last measure in this four-bar phrase has the bass line sinking a half-step lower than in the first phrase, which largely erases the sense that we're in B-flat major, but which prepares us for what we're about to experience, a soft landing in the key of C minor. So, after these unusual eight measures, we next hear a five-measure phrase based on swirling 16th note scale lines in the right hand over more throbbing eighth notes in the lower bass range, initially, and this new idea, which represents the dynamic peak to this point, since it crescendos into a sforzando accent, does direct us towards C minor, and we end there, quietly on the dominant of that key held with a fermata. Since everything to this point makes sense only when we hear it from beginning to end, let's do so. Of course, we can only speculate as to how the amateur pianists who are struggling with this work would react to that first subject. Most would never hear a professional pianist play the sonata, since public concerts devoted to such things were still quite rare at this point. So an amateur might well be puzzled, uncertain of how to deal with a thematic idea which they would most certainly recognize as out of the ordinary. On the other hand, they might at this point have expected Beethoven to do unusual things given his reputation. And in fact, there are elements here that are anticipated in Beethoven's earlier piano sonata, number 16 in G major, opus 31, number 1, including the presentation of part of the first subject unexpectedly down a whole step. I skipped over the G major sonata in episode 20, when we talked about the other two sonatas from Opus 31, but it too offers some unusual features. However, the jump to the subtonic key appears more quickly here 
in the Waldstein Sonata and with a more shocking impact than in the G major sonata. Also, the nature of the theme itself is much more distinctive here than in that earlier sonata. So back to our C major sonata, which, when we last checked, is sitting on a C minor chord sustained by a fermata. It will probably come as no surprise that we don't stay in C minor. What happens next probably initially strikes the listener as a repeat of the first subject in varied form. We're back in C major, and we've moved the theme up a couple of octaves. This time the C major chord is not simply repeated in eighth notes, but in a broken third, sixteenth note pattern in the right hand, almost a tremolo effect. Again, a comparable pattern of sixteenth notes in the left hand. But after four bars, the pattern and the whole harmonic progression takes off into new tonal areas, and we soon find out that we are in a modulatory transition. This transition section moves first in the direction of A minor, but then after a cleverly employed chromatic chord, we're directed toward E minor. In fact, the music fairly drives E minor into our consciousness with a continual alternation between dominant and tonic chords in that key, expressed in arpeggios and scale patterns for eight bars, crescendoing powerfully and studded with frequent sforzando accents for the last few measures. Just when we think the big cadence in E minor will arrive after a dramatic descending arpeggio of the dominant chord, we hear the rhythmic momentum slow significantly, the dynamics fade to piano, and we encounter a somewhat mysterious-sounding series of staccato eighth notes, moving mostly in octave leaps and gradually making their way up and down the B major scale. We can't really read Beethoven's mind here, but it's possible that he simply didn't want that earlier storm of tonic and dominant chords to plow directly into the highly contrasting and rather gentle second subject. Here's the modulatory transition, which begins as a varied repeat of the first subject, something we've already seen in some earlier sonatas, but then goes its own way to bring about the modulation. And that second subject, expressed in quiet chorale-like chords and marked dolce and molto legato, turns out to be not in E minor after all, but in E major. We may well have expected a second subject to be in the key of the dominant, and therefore a fifth higher than the original tonic. But the new key here, E major, is a third higher, and the two tonal centers are chromatic to each other. There's no E major chord in the key of C major. So this is another chromatic-mediant relationship. By the way, the second subject in the earlier sonata in G major was also built on the major mediant, 
which was B major in that case, but again the impact was not as great, because the degree of contrast between the two themes not as strong. And speaking of the second subject, the chorale-like chords I referred to just now accompany a fairly sedate but firmly shaped melody that begins on the third of the new key and descends regally down the scale for the first two bars and then back up for the next two, accompanied by a crescendo. Harmonically, it's fairly conservative, but it does manage to squeeze in two deceptive cadences in just the first two bars. The next four bars take the basic idea down an octave and, in the very last measure, introduce a flight of chromatically inflected ascending eighth note triplets. The chorale-like chords are now shifted completely to the left hand, while the right hand exploits these triplets in various patterns. Some arpeggio-based and some accompanied in thirds. Eventually, the chorale-like chords come to an end on a very clear 5-1 cadence on E major, which you heard right at the end of my excerpt. But the momentum doesn't really flag at this point, just the opposite, really. The triplet figures in the right hand continue, and a new syncopated pattern in the left hand grabs the listener's attention, all the more so because the dynamics have shifted up to forte at this point. The syncopated pattern is soon switched up to the right hand, briefly, while the left takes over the triplet arpeggios. You'd be hard-pressed to call this a closing theme, but it is certainly a closing section, and it continues on for some time, increasing the level of momentum again when the triplets are replaced by faster-moving sixteenth notes and the dynamic level crescendos back up to forte again. Eventually, the 16th note patterns are broken off in the left hand and replaced for a while with syncopated chords, while the dynamic level kicks up to fortissimo. Rhythmically, it's all quite exciting, but harmonically, it's little more than an alternation of dominant and tonic chords, although Beethoven does toss in a secondary dominant chord when the left hand makes its switch to the syncopated block chords. There's a fair amount of sound and fury here, on and off, and it would seem to have no other goal than a big cadence on E major. Here's the section I'm referring to as a closing section.
You can probably guess by the way I'm framing my description that the nominal goal of all this activity may be a cadence on E major, but it is not the real goal. We do arrive on an E major chord, but almost instantly a seventh is added to that chord so that we automatically begin to hear it as a dominant seventh chord in A minor, and that's where it resolves. Initially, the melodic activity still consists of 16th note scale passages, but within a couple of measures, a new melodic idea, not heard before in this exposition, is introduced. It's not complex, it's just a series of descending triadic arpeggios, but expressed in quarter notes and eighth notes, it seems very new. By the way, we don't stick around the newly implied key of A minor very long. Within a few measures, we seem to be in E minor. And then, in the last few bars of the exposition, Beethoven pulls another sleight-of-hand deceptive cadence, and we shift back to C major, just in the nick of time in order to send us back to the opening measures as the exposition repeats. Here's the final section of the exposition, which at least some analysts refer to as a codetta, leading back to a repeat of the opening measures. It's always difficult to guess with Beethoven what themes or motivic ideas he's going to emphasize when we get to the development section, but it's generally safe to say that he's going to move freely from one key to another, bringing us back home for the recapitulation only at the last minute. In this case, the development section begins by employing the same descending triad figures heard in the Codetta and Beethoven employs them to quickly bring about a modulation to F major. So we're really easing in to this new section. But it's not long before the pulsating eighth note chords of the first subject are reintroduced in this new key. And reintroducing those pulsating chords is about as far as Beethoven is going to go with them, because after we hear the two descending sixteenth note motives, from measures 3 and 4, it is those 16th note motives that dominate for the next several measures. Those two motives are tossed around again and again, sometimes higher in the right-hand range, sometimes lower. Meanwhile, the key, proceeding sequentially at times, moves to G minor, then C minor, then briefly to F minor. Then by way of a descending bass line and an adroitly handled Neapolitan sixth chord, we move to B-flat minor. More chromatic chords pop up along the way, and we soon leave B-flat minor behind, in one of Beethoven's most harmonically adventurous development sections. Here's the first part of that development section, beginning with the motives from the Codetta, moving to a brief quotation of the throbbing eighth notes from the first subject, and then carrying on for some time with those two brief descending motives from the opening theme, Beethoven clearly demonstrating that there was more potential in those little motives 
than we may have originally guessed. The development section is not finished at that point, but we do now move on to focus on the eighth note triplet arpeggio patterns that dominated the closing section. This part of the development section may seem a little more relaxed because we no longer hear those sixteenth note motives tossed around, but we're still moving from key to key, and some of the tonal juxtapositions are unusual enough to draw attention to themselves. Eventually, we quiet to pianissimo, at which point the left hand sets up a rumbling pattern of sixteenth notes, quite low in the range, again perhaps taking advantage of the Erard piano's increased sonority. This sixteenth note motive asserts the dominant chord in the key of C major again and again, while the right hand introduces short, ascending motives that make their way up the scale. Soon the dynamics move up, first to forte and then fortissimo, and we cascade our way back to the first subject, and, quite suddenly, a return to pianissimo. Here is the last part of the development section leading into the recapitulation. There's no question that this is one of Beethoven's most exciting and effective development sections. In the recapitulation, there are naturally some changes from the original material as presented in the exposition. The transitions have been augmented and modified somewhat to reflect the new keys, but of course, that's standard procedure. The second subject, when it arrives, is presented not in C major, but in A major another chromatic mediant relationship, but in the opposite direction. But after the first four bars of the chorale-like second subject has been presented in that new key, the key morphs into A minor, and from there it's a quick and easy journey to C major. The closing section and codetta proceed much as before, adjusted for the new key, 
But Beethoven has one more trick to pull in the coda, which pops up via a deceptive cadence in D-flat major, bringing back the opening measures of the movement yet again. We don't stay in D-flat very long, and in fact, we don't stay with the repeating eighth notes very long either. Instead, we encounter what amounts to a second development section, which toys with those same brief descending 16th note motives, initially in the right hand and later in the left, studded with Sforzando accents. A more generic pattern of ascending broken thirds takes us to a pair of fermatas, and the movement closes with a fleeting reference to the second subject, followed by a final reference to the first, and then a rush to the concluding cadence. But we are going to move on now to the second movement. While the first is the most remarkable of the three, the second is obviously not without merit. It is not, however, the original movement provided for the sonata. It's not known precisely why Beethoven's first choice, an andante, was replaced. He may have been advised that it was too long, given the length of the other two movements. It's also sometimes suggested that because the movement is in rondo form, and the finale also is in rondo form, Beethoven thought that it might be a little too much of a good thing, formally speaking. Beethoven later labeled the original movement his Andante Favori, and often included it in his repertoire for more intimate performances. The replacement movement, the one included in the published version of the sonata, is not, however, a completely standalone movement. It's in F major, the key of the subdominant, typical for slow movements, in 6-8 time, and marked adagio molto. But it's also designated as an introduction, and it's only 29 measures in length. Rosen describes it as an arioso, half-accompanied recitative and half-aria, with an orchestral introduction and postlude following. The introduction, however, is very sparsely textured and rather austere, based on a chromatically descending bassline, although the descent is a somewhat erratic one. Melodically, the introduction is based largely on a single motive heard in its original form as an ascending major sixth, although the interval later fluctuates with the harmonic context. The tonality is at times in the first five measures, which, given the tempo, unfold very slowly, highly ambiguous, although the key of F major is clarified by the sixth measure.
the style becomes more conventionally romantic when, in measure 9, the singing melody enters in the tenor range. The postlude returns to a more austere, although texturally and rhythmically more consistent style, and in the last few measures it becomes somewhat more conventional in preparation for its segue into the rondo. While the slow movement seems to look ahead to late Beethoven in some ways, the rondo movement is more conventional, although it's not exactly typical of a finale-type rondo. We're in 2-4 time, marked Allegro Maturato and Sempre Pianissimo. The melody is placed in the left hand in the treble clef range against broken chord accompaniment in the right hand, located mostly in the bass clef. Beethoven would seem to be making an extremely liberal use of the sustaining pedal here, with no indication of a release until the eighth measure. How that might translate to a modern piano is debatable, but I'll defer to pianist commentators such as Rosen and Drake on that particular issue. It is, at any rate, a rather serene, somewhat delicate refrain theme not at all like so many of the robust dance-like themes we've seen before in rondos. 
It's quite simple in its original manifestation and unfolds at a leisurely pace, although the 16th note arpeggios against it are moving fast enough. It's built mostly from arpeggio patterns based on tonic and dominant or dominant 7th chords. The second section of the melody, starting with the second eight bars, presents something of a variant of the first eight, but stay in character, although they do interject a somewhat puzzling fluctuation between the major and minor forms of the tonic chord. After a brief transitional passage, the theme is repeated, doubled at the upper octave. This is followed by a transition employing trills and a last glance at the opening bars of the theme. Here it is again from the beginning of the movement through the first presentation of the refrain theme and the transition to the first episode. Of course, the movement as it develops by no means remains serene and delicate. The first episode is considerably more robust, although it begins with no more than a series of 16th note triplet arpeggios in C major. These eventually tilt in the direction of A minor, at which point a strong ascending melody doubled in octaves in the left hand grabs our attention. As you could hear, the episode becomes quite aggressive dynamically, with sforzando accents abounding, some closely spaced chords in the lower bass clef range, and eventually new staccato motives, played fortissimo as we move from triplet rhythms to repeated patterns of sixteenth notes. 
there is a somewhat quieter transition to the return of the refrain back in C major. Here, as before, the very liberal use of the sustaining pedal in combination with sustained trills generates a highly blurred texture, which makes a particularly strong contrast with the second episode in C minor, which features a powerful melody in staccato octaves in the left hand, echoed by right hand offbeats. The momentum increases as the eighth note melody is augmented by swirling triplet scale passages, first in the left hand and later in the right. Here's the transition from the second refrain going into the second episode. This is a long movement and the form is fairly complex. After a retransition, the refrain theme appears again, but in development mode, as in some sonata rondos we've talked about, where the theme or parts of the theme is developed rather than simply restated. This is followed by another brief episode, a partial return of the refrain theme further developed, a return to the refrain theme in its original form, after a long build-up on the dominant, and a return of the first episode. Furthermore, there is a long coda where a variation of the original refrain theme is played prestissimo. Here's a little bit of that prestissimo section with the conclusion of the very quiet transitional section before it. This is followed by another brief digression, which you heard at the end of my last excerpt, which seems to have no other purpose than to break the hold of C major and introduce some tonal variety before we return to C major, 
for the final, more or less straightforward presentation of the refrain theme. Then we hear another rather hurried version of the theme, and we finish with a rather ponderous cadence. I mentioned earlier that the first movement is the most remarkable of the three in this sonata. That may not be completely fair. It is, I think, the most ingratiating of the three, perhaps by far. But the other two movements have some distinctive qualities that mark them for special consideration as well. At times, the third movement builds up some rather formidable sonorities with its liberal use of the sustain pedal showing that this movement, like the first, is very concerned with exploring new coloristic possibilities, and, as before, very possibly due to the capabilities of Beethoven's new piano. And although the second movement seems almost sketchy by comparison with both the first and the third, there's no question that it, too, is very concerned with color, and in terms of atmosphere, it's every bit the equal of the two longer movements. We'll turn now to Beethoven's next piano sonata, number 22 in F major, opus 54. It too is an unusual sonata, although in a very different way. First of all, there are only two movements. The piano sonatas numbers 19 and 20 in G minor and G major respectively from opus 49 also only had two movements but they were composed much earlier, between 1795 and 1796, and are usually considered student pieces, although on their own terms, they're quite interesting. And Piano Sonata No. 22 in F major has two much less conventional movements than those earlier sonatas. We'll begin with the first movement in 3-4 time, for which the score indicates in the tempo of a minuet. Of course, that does not mean that the movement really is a minuet, or at least not a conventional one. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that this work was quieter and more introspective than Sonata No. 21. But that's really only true for the first movement, and really the primary melodic idea within the first movement. The theme, marked piano, begins with a very simple ascending motive, starting with a dotted 8th 16th note rhythm, first in the bass clef, starting on the 5th of the scale, and ending up a 4th higher. That motive is then repeated up an octave. The harmonic support at this point is minimal, although a simple tonic subdominant, or 1-4, progression is implied. 
After hearing the same motive twice, an octave apart, we then hear it up an octave again. But this time the motive has been expanded to a full arpeggiation of the tonic chord, harmonized by a middle voice proceeding mostly in sixths with it, and ending up a third higher than the first version of the motive. From this peak, it falls back to the tonic note with the help of another dotted rhythm figure and suggests a dominant tonic cadence right at the end. Here is the whole first phrase, measures one through four. It's all very serene and charming in its simplicity, but it doesn't really seem to be going anywhere at this point, mostly because it keeps cadencing back on the tonic chord, again and again, three times in a row. And the second phrase is just a repeat of the first, but the third phrase is a bit different. It too starts with an ascending arpeggio, but this time the top note is a chromatically inflected lower neighbor tone, our very first accidental, which resolves upward, although it soon returns back down to the tonic note via a descending triadic motive. This chromatic inflection allows just a hint of sentimentality to sneak in, although the underlying chord progression doesn't really change, and this new motive also ends up cadencing on the tonic in the next measure. The next two measures just provide a repeat of those two up an octave, but the phrase which comes next expands this idea at much greater length, not just taking it up an octave, but adding in a gradually descending motive, also built partially on dotted eighths and sixteenth notes, which crescendos before returning to piano, back on the tonic chord. Then the whole eight bars are repeated. Here are the first eight. Kenneth Drake describes the theme very adroitly as a peculiar melodic construction that begins by ending twice and then ends by extending its beginning. It is a melodic line that stands still and then it confirms that it intended to stand still. The next section, marks sempre forte and staccato, does not stand still. It features a near-constant flow of triplet eighth notes, often in contrary motion, in octaves in the two hands, but soon breaks into thicker block chords. It begins with a bit of imitation, but abandons it quickly. The flow is interrupted briefly for a cadence on the dominant and starts again on E-flat, again toying briefly with canonic imitation. It later seems to favor A-flat major for a while, and then after that D-flat, but the tonality is pretty fluid for much of the way. The entire section is sometimes described as a trio, which would make sense if the first section were really a minuet, but it's probably better to just use the more generic term of episode. Here's just a little bit of it. 
the persistent triplets eventually peter out, yielding to a quieter and somewhat mysterious passage from which the triplets are not totally absent, but in which they reappear in new guises, in part because of new articulation patterns, and now focusing more on thirds than stepwise motion, perhaps as a reverence back to the first theme. Then the first theme reappears in a more embellished version, with sixteenth note patterns often filling in the earlier intervallic leaps, the addition of some accented non-harmonic tones, and gently syncopated patterns of repeated notes, which also serve to fill in the longer note values in the original melody. Here's a little bit of the quieter transition section leading into the more embellished version of the first theme. The more robust triplet-dominated passage then reappears. It's shorter this time, and is soon interrupted by a couple of fermatas. And then the original theme returns, even more elaborately embellished. This is followed by a written-out cadenza leading to a coda, an interesting one in which an embellished version of the first theme returns accompanied by a tonic pedal deep in the piano's range and, just measures before the end of the movement, repeated dissonant block chords above the continuing pedal, which resolve to set up the final cadence on tonic. But we're going to move on to take a somewhat briefer look at the second and last movement of the sonata. It's in F major again, 2-4 meter this time, and marked allegretto. The expression marking is dolce, but the thematic material is not the sort you'd normally associate with that term. The melody is, in fact, very much in the perpetual motion mode, a flow of sixteenth notes traded off from the left hand to the right after two bars. The main melodic idea, which is really no more than an ascending scale line built into an arpeggio-based figuration pattern, is also traded off, the handoff itself marked by the appearance of a sustained tone, first on the tonic and later the dominant, introduced as an offbeat syncopation. Eventually, this figure takes on a thematic significance of its own, but it seems rather incidental at first. After four bars, we do all this again up an octave. After eight bars of this, a similar pattern, which contains within it a descending scale pattern, is introduced for a few measures. By measure 14 of this pattern, it is modified somewhat in connection with a modulation to C major, the key of the dominant. But things haven't really changed that much, because the new pattern, although it does introduce some new chromatic inflections and some new syncopations in the left hand, again moves up the scale. It's a complicated description, I realize, but there's a lot going on for the first 20 measures, 
and no real pauses in the action where we can get our bearings until we hit a repeat sign. This movement is sometimes referred to as a modified sonata form, and it's possible to refer to this 20-measure section of virtually non-stop 16th notes as an exposition, although it seems an unlikely one. But if it is, that would presumably make the next, much longer section the development section. So after the double bar and repeat, do we then encounter a normal development section? although admittedly, normalcy gets harder to pin down the further we get into the 19th century. You could argue that it does. Motives from the perpetual motion theme are quickly presented in A major, but that soon shows itself to be the dominant of D minor, and before long, we seem to be headed toward new keys, for example, A flat major, although only very briefly, and the introduction of a new idea in the left-hand bass line, a slower-moving, chromatically descending line, undermines that key and suggests we're on the move tonally again, often proceeding sequentially, which is exactly the sort of thing that does happen in development sections. And a few really new motives are introduced, including one featuring octave drops in the left hand, although it is to some extent swallowed up by the repeated figuration patterns above it. Here is the beginning of what we're calling the development section. Another new element you probably noticed right at the end of my excerpt was the repeated note syncopations across the bar, and there are a few other new elements added as well. But patterns derived from the original perpetual motion melody continue to dominate until, a few measures before the recapitulation, we hear a more thinly textured passage built on broken thirds which actually quiets in preparation for a return of the first theme in the tonic key. This recapitulation, if we can call it that, is by no means a simple repeat of the original thematic ideas now in the tonic key. In fact, it is rather like a second development section, which touches on new keys along the way, and there are new motivic elements added as well. There is a repeat indication, which would take us back to the beginning of the development section, 
and there is also a coda, which revisits the original theme for the last time, now at an even quicker tempo. But we are going to conclude our look at this most unique movement here. So where does this piano sonata, number 22 in F major, fit in with the other sonatas in this very special period within Beethoven's development? Rosen states that the first movement of Opus 54 has a hidden poetry that will not reveal itself easily, but repays extended study. I think it would be fair to add the second movement to that category. It's certainly flashy and dramatic and would present a formidable technical challenge to any pianist, but it also presents an equally formidable challenge to most listeners because it is so unremitting in its intensity. But that's where the second part of Rosen's comment comes in. The more you listen through a work of this sort, the more listenable it is. It's not that the difficulties melt away, it's more a question of beginning to understand how they fit into the overall picture. One thing is clear from works like this, Beethoven is no longer terribly concerned with being criticized for his compositional oddities, especially in his piano sonatas, in which, it's reasonable to believe, he feels most free to consign not only his most intimate thoughts, but also his most quirky and experimental. For our next episode, we'll tackle Beethoven's monumental Symphony No. 3 in E-flat, the Eroica Symphony. Music